searching for Canada's best startups. The Pitch Please Podcast. Hosted by Mike Thibodeau. Give us your best pitch. Pitch Please. Three, two, one. Connecting with Canada's startups to learn about their business and the amazing people behind them. Follow along and hear some of the most interesting ideas in startups from across Canada. What's up, everybody? It's Mike. We're back here on the Pitch Please podcast. And today I've got Paige from Couch House. House? I'm not sure. She's going to correct it and let us know what it is. But they're a completely customizable high-end designer furniture company for your home and office needs. They're going to explain it a lot more. But before we do, Paige, if you want to start with a quick introduction about yourself and your role at Couch House. Yeah, totally. I love the house butcher. We just said Couch House here. You can call it whatever you want, though. I am the co-founder of Couch House, along with my partner, my business partner, and my fiance. And as you said it, we create customizable modular furniture for Canadians. Cool. I'm going to want to learn a bit more about even doing business with your fiance. I think that's something I'm sure a lot of people are curious about. But first, let's start learning a little bit about you. Tell us a bit about, you know, your background, you know, some of your other career or life experiences and sort of your journey to what brought you to Couch House now that I've got the pronunciation right. So I always say truly this happened by mistake. And I feel like that about a lot of our different ventures that we've kind of fallen into. We definitely love what we do and there's a lot of passion behind it, but it feels like a lot of the businesses have started because we were really looking for a product that we couldn't find ourselves and then just decided to make it ourselves. Maybe I'll backtrack to university if that's a good place to start. Yeah, yeah, that's a great place to start. It's always fun to start back in university. Yeah. So I'll be dating myself now probably about seven or eight years ago. So this was back in 2016. I was in a car accident where I was actually on bed rest for two months and really found myself in a depression really and just was really rethinking about everything that I liked and what made me happy. And at the time, I was actually studying my health sciences degree with a business minor at Simon Fraser University. So my intent behind that coming from a family of nurses and in the medical space was to work in healthcare, likely uh, going into project management within the healthcare system. So it's what I felt like I knew and felt very comfortable for me. And of course, having traditional Indian parents, it was really a concept of go to school, get a secure job, have a good retirement, buy a home. So that's kind of what was echoed for me for a really long time. And then after this car accident, I really realized I felt really stuck with where I was in school. And I didn't really see that as something that truly made me happy. During the time, I actually ended up making friendship necklaces with one of my best friends. And really what that led to was me posting on Snapchat, again, super organically, And I was serving at the time where it was mandatory to wear statement necklaces, but I didn't like the big chunky ones. So I just wore a bunch of layered small ones that I had really made myself. And my coworkers had asked me, hey, can you also make me some of those pieces? Happy to pay you for it. And of course, I was more than happy to. It was something that made me revived again after feeling pretty low. And then with that, I had met Harrison. Like I said, he was just my boyfriend at the time. Ironically, we both got into the car accident together. So we were both kind of going through a low patch. He has always had that like entrepreneurial mindset. Whereas again, I came from that traditional go to school, get a job mindset. 
So he said, hey, if people want your product, why don't I help you take photos for it and create a website? And, you know, I was like, okay, cool. If this person wants to help me do that, then let's do that. So I launched what was my first business at the time, uh, back 2016. And it was a great learning lesson. Later, I scaled it for about four years and it did get acquired in 2020. So that was really cool to see that grow over time. Congrats. Thank you. And then I guess fast forward a little bit here, Harrison and I realized we still really liked working together. I think he saw me making the money that I was with that, knowing that when it was time for graduation, I didn't have to apply for a job because my jewelry business was making me the money that I wanted it to. And of course, my dad laughed in my face and said, how do you think you're going to make a living off of selling necklaces for the rest of your life? And I took that and proved him wrong. And Harrison and I started, I think we had about six different e-commerce dropship stores at the time, ranging from women's jewelry, dogwear, accessories, things like that. So high margin products that we were able to really market with influencer partnerships and really Instagram branding at that time. Yeah, that's a really long with an answer into how I kind of got into the entrepreneurial space without really realizing that that's where I ended up. And then fast forward a little bit more into Couch House, we were moving into our home that we had just got. And again, I was looking for a product that just didn't really exist for what exactly I wanted. So I created a wants and needs list. And most of the things that were things that I really wanted in furniture really weren't available at the price point that was working for us. Of course, after, you know, you buy a home in the most expensive market in almost the world. And it really comes to a thing of how much more money do I have left in my budget? So we ended up building all of the furniture for our home, like our bed frames, couches, and our chairs, again, just for ourselves. And then Harrison's entrepreneurial hat said, well, what if other people have the same problem? So from there, we posted on Facebook Marketplace, and over the span of three days, we had 1,500 views on the actual post itself and four people that were willing to purchase a product without us having a website, any reviews or validity, and even like a payment processor set up. So people were willing to pay like $3,000 over Facebook Marketplace for a product that didn't yet exist, and they had to still wait for it for two to three months. So... Ultimately, that was our unlock as to how Couch House started. That's super cool. And there's bits of that that I even want to like break into because that's like the ultimate MVP. So did you go straight from your your jewelry business, which I don't know if you said the name, but I was simultaneously looking it up, which was Gem & Co. Did <laughs> you go straight from that to Couch House? Was that like after that moment, there was no looking back to a traditional job? Like the entrepreneurial mm -hmm. bug was lit and you were like, I found it. This is what I was looking for. I'm going to keep going down this path. Or was there something else where you in a reflective state? Like that sounds like it got you kind of back on the back on your feet, back into a better spirits. You were making good money, graduated school. Did you go directly from that to Couch House? Or did you have a moment of reflection where you were debating, do you go down a traditional path again? Or did you continue down entrepreneurship before Couch House? Yeah, great question. So I think I touched on it really briefly, but in the time of me starting Gem, Harrison and I realized we really liked working together and we had a lot of complementary skill sets. So with that, like I said, he was really good at web, web design and advertising, whereas if I was more marketing and brand, and then I had a better grasp on operations as well, just as we started to scale. So we used that and we had five different e-com dropship stores in between that time. So I would say from around 
2016 to about 2021, we really operated those. And then at the same time, I was sharing and posting all of this on Instagram. And I had a lot of conferences and really business owners reach out and say, hey, like, I'd love to know more about your story. So at that time, I was on stage just talking about what I did at different, you know, conferences here locally in Vancouver. And then from there, I had business owners reach out and say, hey, can you help me do what you did? And really what that was is advertising and marketing your project digitally. So we actually then created a media agency in 2019, which was quite interesting because it was right before the pandemic. So it was almost like serendipitous that it was at the time that businesses were forced to go digitally. So I'm glad that we were really able to help our clients at the time with that. But ultimately, in between that two-year time frame where we had the media agency and our own stores, we really knew that our heart was in e-commerce for the businesses that we ran. And I think that's where we made the ultimate shift to just stick with what we really loved and what made us um, feel excited every day for our work. And then Couch House came as what felt like just like another store at the time. But then we realized that we had a lot going on and we ended up having our, uh, we sold our other stores, they got acquired. And then we just focused in mainly on Couch House from that point onwards. Amazing. So the drop shipping was your main thing. There was no question that you were going back. You were, the, this fire was lit. So you were going to keep going down in that scenario. It was, it was drop shipping. And then now it's kind of emerged to something that's very specific. I I guess, in the world where now you've got a, a very specific product and offering. We'll, we'll talk about that. But before we do, maybe talk a little bit about, you know, you've had a few successful businesses with your partner, now fiance. Talk to us about that. It sounds like you found like a natural groove with each other of complementary skills. Maybe that's, you know, chance. Maybe it's you've you know, found how to go down your specific paths and, and be complementary in a business. But talk to us about the, you know, pros of doing that and how that came to be and maybe some of the challenges along the way, since I'm sure it's not all perfect, especially since, you know, you can't really ever turn it off or maybe you found ways to. Totally. Yeah. No, that's I think one of my most commonly asked questions. And I think it is a very interesting situation. So I think when anyone asks about founders in general, like whether it be your partner or like your best friend, I think that it really comes down to complementary skill sets. So making sure that like each person is able to run the business in a way that it's supposed to so that it's beneficial for the business. If you were to look at that as like a third party or like it's its own person, how can you give the most to that individually so that that can also grow? And then I think the biggest thing about working with your partner is really putting your ego aside and understanding that like both people might not always have the answers or one person might actually have a better answer at that. And acknowledging when each person has been working really hard or also being able to call it out and say, hey, like we messed up on this one or we need to pivot what we're doing here. So I think communication also goes a really long way. I know when we had first started working together, it was really great. And that was really what our passion was. And we loved doing that. And we didn't really have, I would say, a life outside of that. And then, you know, about three or four years into it, and we've been together for almost eight years now in January. Then, yeah, three or four years into it, I really saw like, oh, I want more of a divide. Like, I want to be able to go on a date night and not talk about work. 
And then I really fought for that for a really long time. Or I want to go on a vacation and not be on our computer for some reason. And then I really realized, like, this is what my partner loves. Like, he truly lives and breathes his work. He just loves it. It's his absolute passion. So I'm like, okay, why would I take that away from someone? And then I think now we're in an interesting place also, just as we've grown as people and like being in our late 20s, like thinking about like how our life and family could change in the future also. I think we're also developing our own like hobbies and interests per se. And I think that's something that's an active thing that we have to do. Like I know you and I were talking earlier about like hobbies like skiing and cycling and stuff like that. So I think it's really important to make that also an active thing that we do outside of each other and then things that we also enjoy together too. Yeah, like your own independent hobbies that you can feel good talking about the business and maybe you talk about those hobbies or maybe you don't, but those can equally be like your thing. And sometimes totally. your thing is important too. It's cool. It's great advice. Let's maybe talk a little bit then about Couch House. I'm excited to learn more about this and what makes it different and how it works. Um, maybe eventually when I need a couch myself, maybe you do more than couches, but mm-hmm. you're on a show called pitch, please. So, uh, <laughs> inevitably we have to first page here, your best pitch, please. Totally. So, like I said, we are couch house, a customizable modular furniture company with a focus on sustainability. We build furniture for Canadians here and ship across Canada. Um, a couple initiatives that we really focus on with the with the concept of sustainability is for every couch we build, we plant 100 trees. Additionally, we electrify all of our deliveries where we can and where we can't, we offset with carbon emissions. So we fund through EcoCart. And then the third thing that we really also like to focus on is our partnership on with Furniture Bank, where for couches that are leaving our clients' homes, we donate them to families in need. Wow, that's a lot of pieces. Yeah. And I, I love how you've thought about everything from not just the purchase to everything about the life cycle after, including helping people with the couches on their way out and Mm -hmm. to talk about that. Maybe let's just start with this industry and space, furniture, maybe talk about furniture broadly. And then I'm sure you've got obviously great insights that you can tell us about the online furniture or direct to consumer furniture type business. Teach us a little bit about that space. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure if anyone's gone shopping for a couch, um, but it, feels like a daunting process at least for us that's what we felt when we were in our early 20s and had first moved out it was like you're finding your affordable furniture for your first place which is super understandable but after two to three years you also realize it breaks down the fabric doesn't really hold up the cushions start sinking and it's unfortunate because you spend money on something and it just doesn't hold its value so then when we went furniture shopping, you know, now in a different life stage after like having a home, we're like, okay, like let's make an investment in, in our pieces. With that, when we walked into furniture stores, you realize that it's really like a dinosaur industry. It's like you walk into a furniture store that has 30 catalogs and you have a really nice, for example, six-year-old named Cindy who's going to walk you through your process and will really just be reading off the tag. And That was what happened for some of it. And the other part of it is some people didn't even look at us because they maybe thought we weren't qualified buyers. So that I found really interesting in just the furniture industry alone. And then the flip of that is you have an entire e-commerce space where you have, for example, your Wayfair, your article, a lot of really big businesses that don't actually have any space to see the product. So it felt like a really big toss-up. With us, when we started Couch House, Like I said, it was a little bit of a mistake, but when we really 
conceptualized what our shopping experience was. I wanted to change that for people. So when we were on Facebook Marketplace and just messaging people who had wanted our product, it was actually really interesting because I would hop on a video call and just send videos of our fabrics and ask them what they were looking for. So we really created that personalized experience just through Facebook Marketplace, which has now translated into booking in by appointment. It's usually a 30 to 40 minute consultation. I'd love to look at people's interiors. I want to know what their dimensions are. We'll do spatial planning for hallways, chairs, dining rooms, things like that. And then also just piecing your fabrics and colors together, seeing what's realistic for different lifestyles. So that was something that was really important to me when we conceptualized what we do and why we do it. And then the other thing that we also thought about in the furniture space with regards to like a lot of the waste that you see in furniture is we really wanted to consider how our product itself could be modular in the sense that you can add pieces as your space grows. So hypothetically, you're in a 600 square foot apartment one year and then three years later, you're ready for your townhome. That's 1500 square feet. So you could start with a two seater and then add a module to make it three seats. And then maybe five years down the road, you're able to get your detached home. And now you need a five-seater plus an ottoman. So then you can add on your other two modules plus your ottoman. So that's how we conceptualized that component. And then the other thing that we really thought about with the quality of materials, which was really important to me, is, of course, you think of three things when you're building furniture. So one, the structural frame of the piece. So for us, we use solid chili and pine. So no particle board in there. And then also the cushions themselves, you're thinking about the quality of foam because you don't want your cushions to be sinking over time. So we use the Lux density foam, which is really the highest quality foam you can use in furniture. Whereas if other places might use low and medium densities that sink in about two to five years. And then the last thing is your fabrics. And that's typically where people notice the most amount of wear. So we use industrial grade rub counts, which have to be at a 30,000 double rub or more. Uh, which should hypothetically last you around 10 years. Of course, will vary based on your lifestyle. But we wanted to break down those components so that you could also have um, furniture that lasts in your home for longer to reduce the waste in the world too. So the interesting piece <laughs> here, I definitely want to circle back on things you said, which were down the path of like what makes you different and mm -hmm. what it's about. But before, before I do, like you're super deep on couches. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, some of this might have come about when you were building or making your first one for your house. But like, how did you ramp on this knowledge of all these elements to a category that I mean, maybe it's something I missed when you were talking about your background and Harrison's background, but neither of you really had this deep, rich background in furniture building where you're getting dry Chilean wood and industrial high thread count fabrics and specific density foams like where and how did you have to kind of embark on this first journey of really understanding the pieces I'm sure you could maybe conceptualize the modular elements for sure mm -hmm. but this quality element that seems like deeply integrated into what couch house is where and how did you kind of go through that process talk to me about that yeah, I didn't realize I was this nerdy about couches or furniture until you said it to me. But really just wanting a better product. I don't know how else to explain it than the fact that I just wasn't happy with what was out there. I wasn't happy with what I was already spending my money on. And I can imagine that, you know, everyone else's hard earned money should go a little bit farther, too. So just breaking down every part of it, because, of course, when you're still building the furniture, when we're working with our factories, we still need to tell them exactly what we want. And I just think that the status quo wasn't that. So we broke it down piece by piece to build a backup. 
That's really cool. So it was just about tackling it bit by bit as you're going through it for yourself and then making that scalable. So talk to us about what's different about Couch House. And even before you go into that, are you just direct to consumer online only? Do you have physical brick and mortar stores or something in between? Just, I, I think we glossed over it and I just want to make sure we kind of covered that before you talk about some of your cool differentiators versus the competition. Yeah, definitely. So we're mainly direct to consumer and we've stuck with that model so that we're able to offer a, an affordable mid-price point furniture piece. Of course, when you go the wholesale route, you have to consider keystone pricing. So that was something that we wanted to stay a little bit away from so that our furniture still felt accessible to a lot of our clientele. With that, we do have a website, like I said, that ships across Canada, and I still actually have my home as our showroom. So the same way that we used to do a lot of videos with people from Facebook, it was really interesting when we first launched, it was like, well, why don't we just invite people here so they can actually sit on the product? From that point, we also understand that it's not really a scalable business and it's very, very founder dependent. And um, there are so many other things that I know I need to work on and grow on within Couch House. So we did do a pop-up store in Vancouver for three months last year, which went really well. I was really happy with it. Ultimately, it came down to, did we want to do it again? And I think that's really where the caveat of not doing it all yourself is also managing a team and growing and scaling that which comes with its own hurdles and stuff. So we do know that going into, I can't believe it's 2024, but going into next year, we do want to open up a more permanent store that's not from my home. And then we do plan also to do a pop-up in Toronto. We have a lot of clients on the East Coast that want to see our product or have purchased, but one of I noticed that one of their pain points was not being able to touch and feel. And it is an investment. It's about, you know, a three to $5,000 piece at starting price point. So it is our intention to also bring ourselves over there as well. That's cool. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I imagine if you've bought the product once, then scaling it up in the modular fashion would be easy. Some people, I'm sure, just buy directly online. Like we've seen it at Wayfair and others. So, you know, there's mattresses of that regard. But in mm -hmm. some decisions, sitting on it is an important piece, right? Like I sort of imagine people walking around your typical couch store and like the first thing they do is sort of like just like drop back into the chair. And exactly. So for a wider variety of, of people, I guess that makes sense. And the pop-up sounds like a really cool in-between and also sort of matches your sustainability goals, which is like, do you need that footprint all the time and, mm -hmm. and, that, and that type of thing? So we've been talking about couches. You've said furniture a couple times. Is it? Did it start obviously with couches and you're still couches or you're expanding beyond couches yeah, what's what's your your what are your eyes on in that regard? Yeah, totally. So when we first started, like I said, out of just the need of wanting furniture for our own home, we did our own bed frames, we did all of our own chairs in the space, and we did the couch. When we first launched as a business, we actually offered everything that we had also made and more, excluding tables though, but really just anything you can sit on or sleep on. With that, as we continue to grow, we noticed that 90% of our revenue is driven by just the custom couches. So we've honed into that over the past year and not really offering our custom components. We still have access to that with our factory and we can, but you know, it's just really comes down to how much energy can you put into something and what's the ultimate output of that. So we scaled back from that, but I think we want to do it a little bit more intentionally. So going forward, we definitely have products that we have in mind. Most of them are things that my clients already tell me that they're looking for and wanting. So one of the most popular ones is 
the wooden tables that go over top of ottomans or armrests, the ones that fit perfectly for the piece. So we figured if they already have our ottoman in their home or our couch, they probably want a complimentary coffee table to match that too. And it's in the furniture space, it's also inevitable. It's when you start with one product and we've seen it across so many other furniture stores that they have one product and then they grow into how can you furnish an entire home? So it makes sense. It's also just the concept of Right now, our defining factor is customizable. So where clients will give us their exact dimensions and we'll do a made-to-measure model with them. So it's also scaling that with other pieces and figuring out what that in-between looks like for us. Yeah. Can we talk about that customization bit? So, I mean, most Mm -hmm. people custom couches generally, I'm sure you can get completely custom, but the custom people are probably used to is, oh, what fabric would you like? And maybe what density foam you talked about made to measure and you've talked about modular. So can you talk to us a little bit about how that works around like what spectrum of customization is available here and how you're bringing that to market? Because customization on that scale is is hard work and it's expensive generally. And it sounds like you're bringing it at a pretty affordable mid-range price. So talk to us. Mm -hmm. Um, I I was like, I'm surprised I didn't say this earlier, but yeah, that's really like how we are fairly different just in the sense that when we were first looking for a couch, one of our main things is that we wanted was the depth. So we understood our space was on the smaller side, but we didn't want to compromise having a deep, comfy couch. So that was something we really wanted, but we were finding that most of the time that those couches that had a lot of depth were actually too big for our home itself. We then realized a lot of people had a similar problem. So when we do made-to-measure, it's we do have our standard measurements, our petite, classic, and our luxe, but we also do have made-to-measure where if someone says, hey, I need something that's exactly 120 inches in length and exactly 42 inches deep with a chaise that comes up to 60 inches, we can do that. So that's really, I would say, why we are mainly different than a lot of out-of-box furniture stores. And then also on the flip of that, when we had explored custom options in the greater Vancouver area, we noticed that a lot of it came at a really pretty penny. And you're correct in saying that most of the time it's just choose the fabric color. It's not exactly a made-to-measure model. And when you do a made-to-measure model, most of the time you're getting charged at least $500 per module to make any change. So if you have four modules included in that, then you're bumping yourself up $2,000. So that's where we don't charge for extra or we don't charge for giving or taking up to 12 inches. So if it's 12 inches shorter than our standard measurement or 12 inches longer, we keep it at that. And if it does change, it just basically bumps up in price to the next standard module. I hope that makes sense. It's a little bit easier to explain with a visual on our website, but we try to keep it as straightforward as possible. So if I'm kind of to play it back to you, you've got standard modules. So if if (laughs) you don't need a very specific size, and you can do a, hey, do I need a one, two, or three, or four section long? And the sections are standard size. You can just go, yeah. and the main customization is your fabric. I don't think you're changing your foam, right? It's mostly your fabric, it, color, exactly. style. And then you're saying, if I want more made to measure, I can take any of those modules and change the dimension a little bit. And it either goes up to the next one or just reduces. So you're basically just like trimming so you exactly. might have like two big chunks and one medium chunk that allows you to, they're just slightly different proportions, I guess. Um, exactly and, that. I was like, you got it. You explained it better than me. <laughs> no, no, I just wanted to make sure I played it back because I'm like, I was envisioning it and focusing on it as you were kind of going through it. 
how does that work? <laughs> like, where are these built and how are you able to accommodate that level of flexibility? If there's like top secret stuff that you can't share, don't share it. But it's just like, I'm curious how that yeah. works. Like, you're obviously that that's a game changer, I think. Totally. I think it really comes down to having a great relationship with our factory. So when we had first ordered furniture for our home, I think we had actually narrowed into probably 10 factories. And then we ended up, you know, shortlisting to five and we ended up working with three of them. So we worked with three of them. And again, this was just for our own personal use. And we weren't thinking about scaling at that point into anything. But they were really open on working with us just, you know, as doing one-off pieces. So they were okay if we didn't have to do an MOQ of 100 modules in a certain size and fabric. With that, the way that it works on our end with Couch House is every week we basically put an order through with our factory and we'll send them all of the custom dimensions of every component. We send that into them. When it finishes production, they send us photos of it back. We do quality control. So we get photos of everything with measurements. And then I'll do a video call with the team to see if there's any discrepancies that I need clarification on before it ships, of course. And then our factory is also in Shanghai. I know you asked that. So it ships from our factory to the Vancouver port, um, arrives here, and then we dispatch across Canada from Vancouver. That's super cool. Let's talk about the dispatch piece because you talked about like the electrification of your delivery, offsetting carbon impact. Couches aren't small, so I'm just picturing mm-hmm. like the mechanics of shipping these very large items, which I think is part of the reason like historically you go physically somewhere to pick up a couch. Totally. The delivery is a jump off from somewhere in closer proximity, but the direct Mm -hmm. to consumer and couch, I imagine, is a little bit more complex or complicated. How are you doing that? And where and how are you managing the supply chain right to the end around this electrification and sustainability? Yeah. It's funny because when we first started, we thought Harrison, my partner, would be the one delivering everything. So it's, it's comical to think back and understand that. We didn't end up buying or renting a U-Haul for a day and delivering everything ourselves. But again, I think it comes down to a really good partnership. So we partnered with Goldbolt. We're very fond of them because of how they do deliveries differently. So they handle the actual fleet, electric fleet that they work with. And then, of course, when there are so and I'll backtrack and also saying we're also very like a homegrown BC based business. So. We've grown as a hometown hero here and then understand that that's when we branch out. So Goldbolt also has warehousing in Toronto on the East Coast and also various places across the country. So basically what you do at that point is you ship a container with your goods over to their warehouse and then they electrify there. And then, of course, with the transportation that happens across country, that's when we partner with EcoCart where we cannot use our electric deliveries as well. That's cool. And Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, sustainability is important, but it sounds, how do I frame this? I mean, most startups have a million things to deal with and a million costs, and they're trying to find their sweet spot. And I'm sure they all care about sustainability, but it's very hard to build that in right from the early days because Mm -hmm. there's inherently cost, complexity. Why did you choose to kind of lead with that from such an early start in the business? And what were some of the pros to it and challenges for anyone else that maybe is starting out a business and trying to think about how they include that from day zero? Mm-hmm. Well, it's funny that you say that because I think we're about two and a half years young and it really wasn't top of mind when we first started. But as we learned more about the industry, we were also learning that there weren't a lot of companies with this focus. And I think if you're really thinking about a lot of the common 
issues that we have as a generation is our world and how we're going to hopefully keep it a better place and, you know, be happy with that in the future for our generations to come. So I think it just came from a lot of conversations that I was already having with my friends, with my family, and then thinking about the impact that you have as an entrepreneur as well. So I think it's really easy. And I, and I learned this myself is it's really easy to have a store and drop ship a product and make money. And I think that's great to start. But I think as you learn and grow, you also have a responsibility. So that's ultimately why it felt like, how could you just ignore this obvious concept that everyone's already talking about? And just maybe it's a dumb question, but like, is it more expensive to do it in a sustainable Mm -hmm. way? And is that if it is, like, how did you determine the right time? You know, you said yes. two and a half years young. It didn't start out that way. People were talking about it, but that doesn't mean it's like the time to make that change, right? Like the, mm-hmm. It's a big change. So is it generally more expensive? And how did you come to terms with when was the right time for you guys? Yeah, definitely. So the answer is yes, it's, of course, more expensive. Like I touched on it briefly at the beginning, but for every coach we build, we plant 100 trees. So that's like a direct revenue from our products that we partnered with various organizations to really like help grow our environment back in in a sustainable manner. So that's ones where like direct money comes out of your pocket. Also, same thing if you're thinking about delivery companies, there were obviously more cost effective companies, but we wanted to partner with one that was growing in what we thought was the right direction. And then also with um, furniture donation, we do ask for $150 just to help with the logistical component of donating a couch. But in my eyes, that's better than in going to the dump where, again, you're also paying to dispose of a product. In terms of it being the right time, I think that's where it's kind of like, when is it ever the right time to make a change and try to do a little bit better? So, I mean, if you can incorporate it and it makes sense for margins as like a startup or an entrepreneur, then that's a really great way to do it. And I think that there's so many ways to incorporate I don't want to say sustainability because it feels like a very buzzword, but sure, let's go with sustainability in your business, whether it's basically having your business being a social impact business, which I understand ours is not, but also funding social impact or incorporating it like in a 50-50 split. So I think that there's a lot of ways that businesses can start and at least take a step in that right direction. And we're still learning. So I'm always open to understanding how we can also do better. Now, obviously it's like start whenever you're able to it's always hard to make that change was there something that you used to to decide that now is the time or just like hey we've been talking about this for so long we've yeah profitable like was that a moment actually was it like we're profitable Mm -hmm. we've been talking about it for so long now is the moment like would you suggest hey we're not profitable but let's do that as well like yeah no great point Well, it's interesting that you say that too. And like as a startup, I think Harrison and I have always had our businesses as, hey, like we need to pay the bills. Like I don't think it was anything other than that. And the startup world is very interesting because it can be completely opposite of that um, where, you know, you have a high burn rate and or a low burn rate and, you know, you've raised X amount. And we have not gone that route with dilutive or non-dilutive funding. So I think it was a thing, at least for us in our minds, is like, hey, if we're already profitable, like we should be thinking about these next steps for us because it made sense. I also think that like, 
as I mentioned, we had other stores before and that was never top of mind for us. And I really wanted to do this differently. I think I also understood that like being a hometown hero, growing a business locally here is very different. And I think that it's really important to uphold like a reputation for yourself and also your company too. So yeah, it kind of was one of those things that we've been thinking about it. We should probably just do it now. That's cool. Well, good, good on you for, for taking the leap and thanks for the advice for anyone else that's listening. I'm sure it's valuable. What has been, you know, your favorite part or most memorable part of, of building this? I know recently, you know, you were just awarded a top 30 young entrepreneur award, mm-hmm. I think it's top 30 under 30 years old entrepreneur from League of Innovators. That's obviously an amazing feat. You've been from not being an entrepreneur to before 30, having multiple acquisitions under your belt and an award like this, I'm sure that journey has brought lots of amazing, exciting, memorable moments. But what stands out for you? Yeah, it's always funny when people ask me this. And I don't think I ever really have an honest or not an honest answer. I don't think I ever really know what the answer is. But I will say it's always crazy to see. And it sounds so simple, but just our products in people's homes and how happy that makes them when you're able to provide that comfort for them. So from like a customer centric perspective, there's that. And then also, like I said, our focus on sustainability, that's not something that we've ever focused on before. So I think that's also pushing me to think about the world in a different way. And then, of course, there's your, you know, your social accolades, like we got the BC Business 30 Under 30, and then the LOI Youth Entrepreneurs of the Year Awards too. So it's like you're working in the trenches for like seven years, and you're always behind a screen and no one really like, knows what you do every day. And it's been really nice in the past year to have a little bit of recognition for that. That goes a long way for sure in terms of just like, hey, a little pat on the back. So yeah, there's, I mean, there's a couple of things, but I think, I think those would be my top three. I feel like those are a good top three. Have you ever walked (laughs) Mm -hmm. into like a random house for like a, a house party that you were invited to by extension and seen like one of your couches in there? Um, Okay, I haven't, but I've had a lot of really cool like founders and CEOs of companies that I really admire purchase from us. So that's been a really cool experience to be like, oh, wow, this person who's like built a really cool company over like 15 years and is really respected, like, trust me with that. Or when people go to Airbnb, yeah, or when people go to Airbnbs, actually, that's also really cool to be like, oh, I saw your product in this B&B, like I want to buy one now. That's super cool, too. Well, I. I think that's a good start. I think it's going to be cool one day when you just walk in like by extension and you walk in like, whoa, like. That's my couch. Yeah. That's my couch. <laughs> what do you mean that's your couch? No, I already bought that couch. No, no, I mean like we designed it. You bought that from yeah. us. I actually, that'll be cool. Yeah. No, for sure. For sure. That would be cool. I'll wait for the day on that one too. All right. We'll, we'll do another podcast then. Hardest part. Uh, I mean, it sounds like you've had a lot of good upswings, um, but I'm sure those aren't like by chance. You're mm-hmm. obviously putting in work and energy um, and it sounds like you're bootstrapping, which is unto itself challenging, but it forces profitability, which in a market like right now, taking on additional dilutive or non-dilutive isn't always the answer. It's it's the, mm-hmm. the businesses that can prove they have a product people are willing to pay for and can drive profitability that's king. What's been the hardest part for you so far? What a big question. <laughs> I think, um, I mean, there's a lot. I think 
just touching on like the funding component, that's definitely been like a question that's been top of mind for us, because I do think as you're scaling and there's a lot of initiatives we want to take on, it's really comes down to, okay, well, what does that investment look like? And I'll give you a really good example as to what that looks like for us. So the hypothetical of we had three things that we could do with with our resources. And one of them was we had the Vancouver Home Show really pitch us hard on spending $20,000 to uh, be at their home show over four days. The flip of that was, okay, well, we know we want to do a pop-up in Toronto. Realistically, that's going to be about four months of potentially renting our space out. That's another way to allocate our funding. And then another one was, okay, well, what if we put 20K into advertising through lead generation? Like, I'm pretty sure that would bring us multiples, usually like a 10x return on that. So I think right now it's understanding decision-making frameworks and understanding how to make good decisions because I'm realizing that we have so many to make on a micro and a macro level. So that was one that came across, let's say a month ago when I was like, hmm, how do we want to do this to scale up into Black Friday? Or how do we want to do this to go into like 2024? What are our main initiatives that we want to focus on? So I would say figuring out a framework is not only challenging, but also really exciting. It forces you to think in a really analytical way, which I would say most of the time, a lot of my decisions were emotional and and it's worked for us so far really well. But I think when you're working with bigger numbers, you need to be a little bit more cognizant of how that could work in in your favor and then also not. Is there is there some framework or toolkit of how you're approaching those you know now you said you switched from it being more like emotional and feeling mm-hmm. based to more practical and maybe numerically based or or something else yeah i mean i don't know if this sounds silly but it, my brother came from is in a finance world and all he does is financial models and when he used to talk about that like two or three years ago i literally said eric i have no idea what you're talking about like i'm thinking of models on a runway and i know that sounds silly But I was so ignorant to the process of understanding how you can make better decisions. So yeah, I would say now putting that into financial models and the prime example of what I just had laid out as those three options is like, well, how do you invest 20K if that is the example? And what is the greatest return and how do you measure that? So I think really just inputting your data in there and figuring that that out optimally is, is how I'm trying to learn that. Did you already choose one of those three? Yeah, that... The option is ads and a mix of a pop-up. I think that the home show, sorry, no offense, wasn't the wasn't the work for us. Yeah. I mean, for where you're at, it sounds like having the ability to do the pop-up and get people to try the product and driving the sales. Mm-hmm. The home show feels like it's an awareness in some regard, but it sounds like that's maybe secondary to the immediate sales opportunity. Exactly. Being able to continue to self-sustain growth, which is cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, I was going to say, and I was, well, you were also asking about like the challenges. And I think one of the other ones specifically that we've been talking about a lot is how to stay ahead. And with that, that comes with technology. So we've really been imagining what this industry looks like in five years. And I think for like people who are listening in the space as well, not specifically furniture, but in their business. What does your industry look like five years and how can you get there sooner? Um, So for us, it's augmented reality on our website and how people can envision their furniture in their home and how they can use our website more optimally rather than just click, essentially. How can they 
see better. Um, so maybe that's our other challenge is figuring out what does it look like and how can we get there? Tech innovation. Mm -hmm. If people want to buy a coach, see a coach, or just support you on the journey, where can they go to find out more? And is there anything specifically that you are looking for if people are looking to help out in, as part of your journey? Or is it just, hey, if you know someone that needs a coach, come to this site? Totally. No, I'm actually really glad you asked that. We're really looking for people, which I think is also one of the challenges in growing and scaling as a founder is not being a founder business. But website is couchhousehaus.com. Instagram, couch underscore H-A-U-S. And we're on all the socials there, so I'm sure they'll link through. And in terms of growing, yeah, I would love to know if there's anyone on the East Coast, specifically Toronto, who's interested in being a part of our pop-up. And then also going into uh, Q1 next year, we're going to be launching the Strong on Influencer partnerships with content creators. So I'd love to see if there's other people out there that would love to create content for our furniture in their space. Cool. We'll, we'll make sure all those items are listed out in the show notes and description links, as well as I always love it when when I talk to a founder and they have some specific things because there's a million things on your plate. And so if you can carve them out with clarity, hey, we're looking for some influencers. We're looking for partnerships around our ability to, to drive a pop-up in Toronto. Um, those are all great, great ways to, to help. And I'm sure there's hopefully some listeners out there that, that might want to tap into those two, two areas for you. Um, totally. And actually, yeah. while I'm at it, may as well Layer it plug on. you as well. Yeah, just may as well. Uh, we have a referral program. So if you mention someone's name um, that has a couch, then you get $150 off. But in this case, since you hosted me on Pitch Please, if you mention Mike, then you'll get $150 off your purchase and Mike gets a little thank you commission as well. I love it. So happy to it. throw that your way. I love it. Cool. Well, Paige, thank you so much for joining today. It's cool to see, you know, that pivot from, you know, the the sciences background with a little bit of like business on the side to all in winning it, driving a profitable business, winning awards along the way, and really disrupting what hasn't traditionally been that disrupted of a space. Um, it's cool to see your journey and I look forward to hearing a bit more about when your pop-up's coming to Toronto. I, I make, I'll make sure to pop through. Um, yes. Any closing thoughts or words on your side just for anyone kind of listening in tonight? Mm. I think one of the things I've heard a lot from founders or just entrepreneurs or people who want to be in this space but don't know where to start. Uh, one of the things I always say is it's never going to be 100%. So it's okay to even put out your 80% because it's always going to be a work in progress. Um, prime example is our website. We did it two and a half years ago and we finally just updated it. And it finally looks like something that I'm a little bit more proud of now. But yeah, I guess same thing goes for anyone who's unsure of where to start. Like just get it going and put something out there. And it's always going to be an iterative process too. That's cool. One foot in front of the mm -hmm. other. It's it's such good advice. Exactly. And I think the part that specifically you said, other people have said kind of similar ideas around just get one foot in front of the other, get started. But I think the piece that you said that resonated the most is it doesn't need to be perfect. Like we almost self get self-critical and never get something out there because it has to be perfect. And if you kind of reflect back on where you started, it was a Kijiji ad with some pictures and that was it. Totally. When you were doing yeah. like FaceTime <laughs> calls to get the ball rolling. Your most adamant customers don't care. 
and you will grow into the rest. But if you wait for all of it to be perfect, you might never get started. So I think that 80% exactly. um, is a really good framework for people. Just just get something rolling and you know what? It'll either work or it won't. And you'll find out really totally. quickly if people care. Yeah, I agree. Well, Mike, thank you so much for having me today. It was a really fun to go down memory lane this morning too. I love it. Thanks a lot, Paige. Thanks for joining us on the Pitch Please podcast. And for everyone that joined, thanks again for listening in and make sure to catch us on the next episode. Have a good one. You've been listening to the Pitch Please podcast. Pitch Please. Pitch Please. <laughs> Hosted by Mike Thibodeau. Tune in for regular episodes and show notes at pitchplease.ca. And make sure to give us a follow on your favorite podcast platform. Pitch Please, a Bluemex podcast, is hosted by Michael Thibodeau and does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. For more Pitch Please content subscribe where you get your podcasts and visit bluemex.io to join us on Discord.